You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. If you can take out your Bibles, we're going to be continuing in our series in Luke's Gospel. And we're in chapter 19. If you've not been with us over the last few weeks, we have been in a series looking at the kingdom of God, what it means, how does it apply to our lives today. And we're looking at a parable that Jesus tells. And I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 19, from verse 11 through to 27. So Luke chapter 19 Verse 11, it says this. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Why don't I pray before we start? Heavenly Father, it's been a wonderful and hard time together so far in our gathering this afternoon. Such highs, 
and 60 blows. And so experiencing the breadth of emotion of what it means to live in a wonderful world you have created, but a world that is broken, we come to you to hear your voice speak to us as your word is opened. Longing to hear your voice that we might hear words of comfort, encouragement, and instruction. We pray that as we listen to you, none of us would leave this place this afternoon unchanged. Amen. Well, I think this has the potential to be one of the most unnerving passages that we're going to look at across this series on the kingdom of God because it asks the question, and this is a personal question for you, it asks the question, are you really in the kingdom of God or have you made a tragic assumption? Are you really in the kingdom of God or have you made a tragic assumption? You see, it's a story that, as I've just read, it carries a very strong warning, isn't it? And it's got a tone that's like um, a Halloween version of the TV show The Apprentice. Have you seen that one? But there are two tools. There are two tools that I want you to hold on to throughout our journey through this passage over our our time this afternoon. I'm going to repeat them a lot, but I want you to hold on tight to them. Uh, The first one's this. This passage is fundamentally about heart attitude. It's fundamentally about heart attitude. That's number one. And two, pay attention to the context. They're the two tools I need you to hang on to as we travel through this text. Because we're going to travel pretty fast, and there's a lot to unpack. So hold on to those two things. So here we go. Look with me at verse 11. We're dropped into verse 11. And Jesus is in the middle of the chaos of a crowd. We're told that actually this passage links to the passage uh, that we we looked at last week. And, And just before Jesus gives this parable, if you were to go back to last week, if you were to go back to the beginning of Luke 19, Jesus has just offered the hand of friendship to a man called Zacchaeus. And he was an absolutely hated tax collector. That meant that he was working for the Romans against his own people in order to get a little bit of profit. Now, Zacchaeus would have had an absolutely despised reputation. If it was modern times, Zacchaeus would have been as hated, as hated as, say, a... um, a sex offender who had continually preyed upon other people in the community. That's how hated he would have been at the time that uh, Luke was writing this gospel. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't go for the political safety of kind of, you know, long-distance hand-shaking of Zacchaeus outside some sort of police rehabilitation centre saying, you've paid your duty to society, welcome back. No, 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 what Jesus does is Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to stay at your house. Now that would be the equivalent today of being invited to this offender's house for Christmas dinner and Jesus saying, okay, 
looking forward to it, don't spare the gravy. Can you imagine how offensive this would have been to the crowd who were listening to, to all of this, who were watching all of this unfold? Ralph was unpacking that last week. If you missed it, do go and take a look. So understandably, the crowd are both absolutely confused and they're very surprised when Jesus declares to the whole crowd who are listening, by the way, Zacchaeus, and I know you were victims of Zacchaeus, but Zacchaeus, well, he's one of the true people of God now. He's very sorry for what he's done and he's going to pay back compensation to all of you as a mark, as evidence that his heart has changed. But you know, this would have only really added to the fuel of the fire that the crowd already had, because this was a hyped-up crowd. Throughout um, this part of Luke's gospel, this crowd had been following Jesus. Jesus is building this momentum because Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, and the crowd believed that Jesus was going to be the the great revolutionary leader who was going to get to Jerusalem. He was going to overthrow the the Romans in a bloody revolution. And finally, home rule for Jews would be restored through Jesus. After all, last week we heard that they were in Jericho. And Jericho is only 17 miles from Jerusalem. It must have felt to the crowd that this was just a countdown to victory. Perhaps some of this community who were convinced that they were part of God's inner elite circle, that's why they were following Jesus around. Perhaps, we don't know this, perhaps as they collected their compensation from Zacchaeus, perhaps... They whispered in his ear and said, Zacchaeus, watch your back, because when the Romans are gone, you'll be gone too, perhaps. So it's into this chaos, it's into this confusion of who's in and who's out in the kingdom of God. What's this kingdom of God all about? That Jesus silences the crowd by telling them, this very graphic and intense parable. I've got three things to particularly highlight. The first is is longer. The the final two are, are mini. But the first one's this. Number one, the characters in the story. The characters in the story. I don't know about you. I imagine this is very similar to many of you. When I was a kid, you know, at primary school, in the playground... You always wanted to um, play certain characters. You were watching something on television. Perhaps you were reading a book that everyone was reading. And you wanted to act out. You know, you wanted to kind of join in. You wanted to pretend that you were one of the characters. And um, I was a child of the 80s. And so one of the things that we were always playing in the playground was the A-team. Yeah, the A-team. You know, I was desperate to be kind of like, you know, Hannibal Smith, you know, with all the clever ideas. And um, I always ended up kind of being kind of like the mad, kind of crazy Murdoch guy. I didn't quite know why that was, but that's beside the point. The, the issue was we all wanted to be someone. You looked at a story that you liked, and you said, who am I? Who am I? It's a good question, isn't it? Because it's also true in parables. We come to a parable like this, and they invite you to do the same. So as you look at this parable, which character are you? 
Which character do you think you are? Well, let me go through it. In this parable, we're given a map of the kingdom in the story, and we're told that the most powerful person is a nobleman. And that means someone who is most likely responsible for something around the size of a city. Okay, he'd be like the kind of a powerful mayor of a city. In fact, in verse 12, we're told that the nobleman is on the verge of a massive power upgrade. He's been summoned, presumably by someone like the emperor, to be given the promotion of becoming a king, having a larger kingdom. Now, here's the thing. If you're thinking to yourself, okay, I've heard the passage, I've listened to the story, I am definitely the king in this story. Can I, can I just say, really? Because I think out of all of the roles that we're going to see in this uh, parable, uh, the nobleman is most likely going to represent God. <laughs> so if that's you, we probably should talk afterwards. I'm, I'm just putting that out there. Let's move on. The first group that we meet first characters we meet are people from the city who absolutely hate the nobleman. Do you see that? And, and at the news that the nobleman is about to get this massive power upgrade, he's about to become a king, they send a delegation uh, to protest, to say, we do not want this person as king. We do not want this person to have more power and authority. Now, those characters, well, they might be you. They might be you, okay? So think about that and, and just park that for now because, you know, they might be you. Well, in the map of the kingdom, the focus goes kind of like from the, the macro level to imagine the city center. We're right there in the palace now. And the focus is on the palace. And here we meet the servants of the nobleman. These are the inner circle. These are the ones who are most intimate with the nobleman, the ones who are most devoted to him. Uh, they're the ones who really, really get the vision of the nobleman. And the nobleman, in verse 13, gives them the task, gives them the assignment of taking a minor, which was the equivalent of a day's wage, and they are told to invest it whilst the nobleman is away. I told you, it sounds a little bit like a challenge on The Apprentice, doesn't it? So I guess the question is, are you one of the servants? Well, let's have a look at them. The first two we meet, look with me at verse 16. They're in verse 16. They take the miner, and we're told that they invest it. Maybe they invested it in, I don't know, tech startups or crypto or Twitter or something like that. Either way, they increase their wealth, we're told. And we're told that these servants, well, they do it because the nobleman is great. They, they, they really like the nobleman. They know him. They trust him. And they think to themselves, his pleasure, the idea of delighting him, is worth the risk of failure. And I deliberately say worth the risk of failure because that is the key. Personally, you may not think it, I really don't like taking risks. I'm the type of person who is always kind of thinking ahead at kind of worst-case scenarios. But one of the changes that I've seen in, in culture, both in myself and in wider society, and maybe even amongst you guys too, particularly since the end of lockdown, is there is a reluctance amongst us, I think, to take risks. There is a powerful sense in the atmosphere of deficiency about. 
that we do not have enough. I say to myself, I do not have enough emotional capacity. I do not have enough energy. I do not have enough to cope if it goes wrong. And therefore, I conclude, I really don't have enough time. Many of us, I think, feel, don't we? Don't we feel like we're on the cusp of being absolutely overwhelmed? And one more failure might just tip us over the edge and we'll find ourselves unable to cope in total emotional meltdown. However, these servants who are risk-taking, they took the miner, they invested it, these servants, it's not that they're oblivious to risk. It's not, it's, like they, it's not like they don't care about risk. It's just that they have a confidence in the nobleman's character. That should they fail, should it not work out, should they invest the miner and it absolutely tanks, they know that should they fail, they would receive comfort, support, and encouragement from the nobleman. You see, these first two servants are willing to go to the very edge of failure to take the risk of potentially falling into pain because they know that their master is wonderfully good. You see, it's an attitude thing. It's a heart thing. Fundamentally, it's a heart thing. Now look. Jesus deliberately references one servant who takes a risk and gains a little bit and another servant who takes a risk and gains loads. Yet both of them are praised by the master. Both of them are given these wonderful awards of cities by the master because of his pleasure. Because, because one of the things trying to be communicated here by Jesus is that he's, he's not saying... Your productivity as a believer leads to how much God delights in you. No, 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 no. He's saying, actually, the attitude that you have is what matters. And if you have a massive impact, then that delights God. And if you have a smaller impact, that delights God too. So, so it comes down, if it's a heart attitude towards God, it comes down to a question for you this afternoon do you love God? Do you love him? And evidence of that love is whether or not you will risk in service to him the very gifts or resources or talents that he has provided for you. You see, you cannot come to the edge of risk unless you are confident that God is good. I want you to note a couple of things. Did you note the reward for the two servants is absolutely mind-blowing? It's huge in generosity, isn't it? A day's wage, invested well, one of them gets 10 cities, one of them gets five cities. That would be like the equivalent of um, Lord Sugar on the TV show Apprentice saying to the winning team, right, you guys won, well done, you, you can have the entire north of England. That's your, that's your reward. Go and enjoy. And then to the runner-up team, uh, you get the whole of Wales. Now, you can decide which one got the better deal. But it's, it's outrageously generous, isn't it, for what they actually invested. It wasn't even their own money. 
But you might be asking the question, why reward competence with greater responsibility? Why reward competence with greater responsibility? Well, it's simply this. In God's kingdom, your value isn't rooted in your role. Your value isn't rooted in your role, which means you can be productive a little and be delighting in God or productive a lot and still delight in God. However, God cares so much about his creation and he cares so much about his world that only those who are faithful and skilled should be given greater responsibility. That actually makes sense, doesn't it? Because actually deep down that's loving. And so I've got two bonus applications for you on this one. Uh, The first one's this. If you have been at this church, let's say for four weeks or more, and you have not invested time, talent, or treasure, that's not the end of the world. But that is a warning light on the dashboard of your heart. Number two, if you have not been a faithful servant on this church's welcome team, on our hospitality team, or our production team, because these are the teams that we offer people as soon as they come into church. If you've not been faithful in those areas then please don't expect to be tapped on the shoulder to lead uh, a ministry or a small group or lead one of the teaching uh, areas of the church. It's not that the Lord doesn't love you. It's not that he doesn't delight in you. But you see, it's all about heart, attitude towards God and our actions. What we do with the gifts that God gives us flows out of that heart action. It starts with the heart attitude. Which brings us to the third servant. Third servant, well, he takes the miner and he buries it. And when he's questioned by the nobleman in his, let's say, his annual review, his excuse is, well, he confesses to an attitude problem. Do you see that in the passage? Look at me at verse 21. He says, I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. In other words, the third servant turns to his noble master, who is now the king, and says, look, I have observed the way that you operate in the world. And I find you threatening. I find you threatening. Do you see what separates one servant from taking a risk in service and the other servant from hiding his minor away is their heart attitude towards God. It's not competence, it's not skill, it's not even experience, it's attitude towards God. You cannot come to the edge of risk unless you are confident that God is good. So I I ask you the question again, I wonder which servant you think you are most like in this passage, which servant do you think you're most like? Let, Let me bring this home a little bit more, right? Let me kind of twist the knife a little bit. It's this, don't assume too quickly. Don't think to yourself, well, I've given a lot to church over the last month, or I've been involved in lots of things over the last years, or I have just been, you know, on it for the whole of my life. Therefore, I'm clearly one of the good guys in this passage. 
Look, perhaps you really are one of the good guys in this passage, but remember, it's not fundamentally about how much you do or how much you serve or how much you give. It is about the attitude of your heart towards God. So let me ask you this question. This is a nosebleeder, okay, is this. What has God given you, I'm talking to you specifically, that could be used for his service that you are not prepared to risk? Let me say it again. What has God given you that could be used for his service? You know, time, talent, treasure. That you're just not prepared to risk. What is that thing that in your mind... Should you invest it, whatever that thing is, should you invest it in gospel ministry and service to God? And in your mind, if you invested it, but it didn't work out, perhaps it failed, it went wrong, or it was harder than you thought, or it opened you up to criticism, or it left you more vulnerable than you were expecting, or it made you more likely to be single, or it made you comparatively less well-off than your friends, or less impressive than your peers, what is that thing that if it didn't work out when you invested it, you wouldn't merely be disappointed, but rather it would absolutely crush you, proving your suspicion that really God is cruel? What is that thing in your life that you are holding on so tightly to that you cannot risk? It's a penetrating question, isn't it? You see, whether you're a brand new Christian or whether you are a full-time Christian worker, that's a penetrating question. I wonder who you are in this parable. Well, come with me to our second point. The last two are, are, are tiny, and it's this one. The controversy of the story. First was the characters in the story. This is the controversy in the story. You see, we know, don't we, those of us who love film, who love movies, who really enjoy great books, great stories have drama. Great stories have controversy, don't they? And there is a really fascinating finale to this story. Look with me at verses 24 to 26. The nobleman is now king, and upon his return, he takes the minor from the servant who did the least and gives it to the servant who achieved the most. And the king's explanation for this is that to everyone who has, more will be given, but for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Now look, this is... This is really, really controversial. It is a completely counterintuitive statement. It's so counterintuitive that even the people in the passage are saying, hey, king, you can't be doing that because that person's already got 10. It's just not fair. What that means is that Jesus knew, as he's telling this parable, he knew that this was going to be really difficult for us. He knew that this was going to be controversial. What does it mean? Why does the servant who hid the minor get removed? Why does the one who received 10 get the extra one? What does it mean to say that even the person who has nothing, 
Even what they have will be taken away. What does all of that mean? Well, remember the context. Do you remember what the tools at the beginning? Remember the context. Jesus is talking to a crowd who are absolutely furious that someone like Zacchaeus could be considered part of God's kingdom. You see, this is a crowd of people who are around Jesus who thought of themselves like this. They said, look, we're not perfect, but at least we're not like him. They were the type of people in the crowd who would have today said to themselves, look, hey, I'm not the best Christian in the world, but my grandparents were Christians, therefore that has to count for something, doesn't it? But what we've seen throughout this passage is it's all really about heart attitude. Remember, it's all about the heart attitude. And Jesus' point is that the only way to be counted a faithful citizen of God's kingdom is if you love him. If you trust that God is good. You see, good behaviors, wonderful achievements, even for the church, even when your behaviors and your actions in life are consistent with good Christian values, if you do not have a heart for God, it actually means nothing. Which is why Jesus says, even what they have, that is, even what they can be commended for, will be taken away. But for those who do love the Lord, I love expressed in risking time, talent, treasure for his service. Even if it's tiny, well, God will give more. That is, not that he will give more materially, not that he would give more financially, but it's he will give more of that delight, that enjoyment, that good confidence in God, that will increase, that is what will grow. To everyone who has more, to everyone who has, more will be given, but for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. It's sobering, isn't it? Final point. We've looked at the character of the story. We've looked at the controversy of the story. Let's look at the twist in the story. And every great story has a twist, doesn't it? And this one is no exception. But again, the context is the key. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And so far on his journey throughout this part of Luke's gospel, every person he meets, every story he tells, he's communicating, he's revealing something about why he's going to Jerusalem. He's already said that he's going to die. He's already said that he's going to be raised again. And every segment of this part of Luke's gospel unveils a little bit more so we understand why does he have to die? Why does he have to be um, you know, brought back to life? What's going on there? So the question is, what does this parable precisely tell us about why Jesus is going to Jerusalem? What does this passage teach us about the cross? Well, look with me at verse 27. It's the last verse, and it's an absolute shocker. If you're a non-Christian here, we love having you, but did did you read that, and did that stand out? If you were the one who brought your non-Christian friend, is is your heart not thinking, I should have brought him last week? Let me read it to you. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Kill them. Whoa. 
after everything that we've been through over the course of this passage, over these last few minutes, are you not kind of sitting there thinking, ah, what if, what if that's me? What if that's the twist? That as I look at my life, as I look at my time and my talent and my treasure, there just seems to be more and more evidence pointing to the fact that I just don't want Jesus to be king over it. What if you're realizing that actually the more you look at your life, the more you're saying, actually, my life is a testimony of wanting God's good stuff, but I don't want him. What if you're realizing as you come to the end of this passage, oh my goodness, I've got that sinking feeling. If I am anyone in this passage... It is these people who are enemies of God, and look what happens to them. God's justice is to come down. What if I am the enemy of God? Well, here's the thing. In the context of all of Luke's gospel, in the context of what this parable is teaching, If you are someone who's sitting there thinking, hands up, I think I'm one of the enemies of God. And this is what Jesus says to you. He says, if you want, I will take your place. That's why I'm going to Jerusalem. If that's you, if that's what's going to happen, if you want, I will take your place. That's why I'm going to the cross. You see, that's the twist. If you've realized that you're an enemy of God, if you've realized that there's nothing that you can do, if you have realized that you want to choose to accept Jesus' invitation for him to be judged in your place, then Jesus says, I will take your place. That's the twist. So the, the question is, who are you in this passage? And if you are the enemy of God, what will you say to Jesus' invitation? Two things, just very briefly as we finish. Just reflections on this passage. Number one, Annabelle, she realized that she was an enemy of God she heard Jesus' invitation and she said yes. Second reflection is this. I wonder for those, I wonder for those who realize that they are enemies of God. I wonder for those who actually said yes in their hearts. Yes, Jesus, please take my place. I wonder if it changed their heart attitude towards God when they said that. And I wonder if it changed what they were prepared to risk in service to God. My hunch is, my hunch is, it made all the effort, all the difference, all the difference in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that despite being enemies of God, despite taking our time, talent, and treasure, 
and hiding it away, daring not to risk it. Yet you sent the Lord Jesus to take our place. As we see him do that for us, I pray that melts our hearts. As we see him suffer where we should have suffered, to be slaughtered where it should have been us, to die where it should have been us, I pray that that would move our hearts to love him with a risk-taking love that we have never before encountered in our lives.